Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic. The Athletic. Welcome to the Business of Sport podcast on The Athletic. Now, since recording this episode, something rather big has happened that is right up our street. It's finally happened. The takeover of Newcastle United by the Saudi Arabia Finance Consortium. I'm with The Athletic's George Culkin for some quick reaction. George, how do you feel? Knuckered, to be honest, Matt. I mean, it's been a it's been a very very busy twenty four hours, incredibly hectic. Um, sort of come from the blue. The ir- irony, really, of it is after sort of all this time. But you know, we're talking about eighteen months of this grinding away in the background, as you know perfectly well, writing about it, um, and really longer than that. I mean, it's we've just gone past the four year anniversary of Amanda Staveley going to her first. Uh, match at, at St James's Park and deciding that Newcastle were the club for her. And, um, you know, those bids fell through, as we know, and um, and now she's come back. I mean, I think it's the day that that Newcastle fans thought wouldn't ever happen, but um, Mike Ashley has gone after 14 controversial, difficult, painful, corrosive, toxic years, and they're now facing something much, uh, you know, very, very different and um, controversial for different reasons. Well, yes, we're going to get into a little bit of that, and I and I look. I'll, I'm not going to leave it all for you to do, George. Thank I mean, you. Know, that would be unfair. But look, come on. Let's let's talk a little bit about that fan reaction and what this means for people in Newcastle. But dare I say the wider area? I think there are probably parts of Newcastle that couldn't give a monkey's. But you know, this sure. clearly this clearly is a regional story. Yeah, I mean, I I I, I do think that the first important thing to say is that it is the end of something and you know if you're a 20 year old Newcastle fan for example pretty much the only thing you've ever known is Mike Ashley's ownership of the club and we're talking about two relegations we're talking about this sort of institutionalized failure this um this lack of hope and ambition of course all the controversial decisions that have kind of happened along the way the renaming of the stadium the treatment meted out to people like Alan Shearer and Kevin Keegan, all those kind of next to, to prestige and the club's uh, kind of well-being, and leaving it really, in the words of Alan Shearer, um, our columnist, an empty and hollow shell. And so I do think, and, you know, they're second bottom of the table at the moment. They've not won a game all season. They've been playing some of the worst, well, the, the worst football I can remember for the last couple of years. So I do think it's important that Newcastle fans get a chance to, to say goodbye to something and good riddance to something. Um, but of course, the big question is what comes next? And, uh, you know, we're talking about the involvement of Saudi Arabia's public investment fund. I know you'll have a lot to say about, about this, but theoretically, that makes Newcastle arguably the wealthiest wealthiest club in the world. Um, and so it's a transformative takeover. Now, there's a lot of baggage that comes with that. But, um, and that's probably a very, you know, that's 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 underplaying it probably to an unforgivable degree, but I'm sure we'll, t- we'll talk about that too. But it's a transformative takeover. It offers the chance to 
um, to lift them up, you know, to lift them up the table. Uh, there is the promise of investment in the city and in the region and in a club that has been starved of it and that is in that is crying out for updates to, to infrastructure and so on and that needs a bit of TLC, quite frankly. Well, let's unpack some of that baggage, right? So we've talked about them a few times. We've mentioned them. Public Investment Fund, they're a big, big sovereign wealth fund, about 50 years old. For the first ooh, 20, 30 years, they were very inward looking. They basically spent Saudi's fossil fuel income on very Saudi projects. But for the same reason that Norway has a sovereign wealth fund, that, that Qatar, Abu Dhabi, UAE, they all have sovereign wealth funds. It's about diversifying the income because you know that we are eventually going to stop putting diesel and petrol in our cars and relying on gas boilers. At some point, we are going to get away from that. So they've got to diversify their economies. They have other issues as well, sorts of social issues. You know, people in Saudi Arabia, you know, they're, they're worried about the same stuff that we are. They want to, they want to create new jobs. They want people to be live fit and active lives. All sorts of good stuff, right? So that is what PIF have increasingly started to do. And quite aggressively in the last 10, 15 years, they have become a very, very active sovereign wealth fund. And they've taken stakes in things like Uber and Live Nation. And they have gone after big entertainment brands. They are making big external investments now. And I think the reason that we can no longer pussyfoot around the controversy is they have become, they've basically become the Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman's clearing fund for his strategic vision for where he sees Saudi Arabia going. And for a long time, that was very favorably looked, well, not for a long time, for a period, it was favorably looked upon by the West, that here was this young, seemingly reforming figure who was going to, as I said, diversify the economy, but, but you know, bring Saudi Arabia, well, I was going to say the 21st century, the latter, heart, latter bit of the 20th century. And we were just going to basically behave like good partners in the region. Now, Recently, some of those things haven't gone so well. Saudi Arabia's got involved in a brutal civil war in Yemen, massively fell out with its neighbor, Qatar, which is very significant to this story, and has cracked down on dissidents. We are a sports podcast. This is a business of sport podcast. I urge people to do their own research on that. Yeah, here, here. Okay. But from a business of sport point of view, from a football takeover point of view, the public investment fund has significant baggage. Now, from a Premier League angle, as part of its falling out with Qatar, which started ugh, four and a bit years ago, Saudi Arabia went after Qatari assets to weaken and, and hurt Qatar. It was a falling out. And one of the key assets they went after was Be In Sports, a long-term Premier League broadcast partner, one of the biggest broadcasters in the world, certainly in North Africa and the Middle East. And they basically, to cut a long story short, stole Be In's feed for the best part of, well, you know, three and a bit years. 
And for a long time, the Premier League knew this and backed its broadcast partner, as it always does, for commercial reasons. And for a long time, Mike Ashley would have sat in meetings and gone, yeah, that's exactly what we do. We go after people with dodgy feeds in pubs in Portsmouth, and we go after people that steal our stuff in Saudi Arabia. Go for it. Now we get to the beginning of this year, and the Saudi states, who have been ignoring Premier League demands, requests, and then the NFLs and the British governments and everybody else, because they've just been ignoring this stuff because it was part of this fraternal row with Qatar, and that was their priority at that time. Now they want to join the club. And it's ever since then that that piracy issue, that local issue, that squabble has been Newcastle's problem. Get to today. Well, we get to yesterday. We're doing this on Thursday. Yesterday lunchtime, all of Bean's Christmases came true at once. Okay? It found out that it was no longer banned in Saudi Arabia, that its biggest single market, where it hasn't been able to legally broadcast, it now can. Now, the thawing had started already, but yesterday was the key day. Furthermore, Saudi Arabia has promised to cooperate on tackling piracy. So if Bean has a problem, it will say to the Saudi authorities, by the way, can you shut down that dodgy feed? Saudi said it will. It has also said it's going to settle the various disputes that Qatar has started, the arbitration cases that have started against Saudi Arabia. There's a big one involving Qatar Airways. There's another one involving the citizens that got stuck in when they closed the borders. And there's one involving Bean, a billion dollar arbitration case. They're all, they're all going away. Peace has resumed in the area. And miraculously, what happens 24 hours later? Newcastle fans get their deal. You've been on top of the, you know, that side of the story. I mean, and I'm pleased you have because, uh, because it's so far away from what I would consider, you know, my day-to-day job. And, you know, you've, t- you've touched on all those things. And, you know, I care... I care deeply about human rights. It's something that, um, you know, there's something I, I, I feel kind of very passionately about. And But, you know, Newcastle fans have, have kind of found themselves having to ask questions, answer questions about these subjects. And it's, I mean, you know, obviously it's it's incredibly complicated. It's, it's, it's contentious. It's difficult. It's heartrending, some of it. But a lot of them, you know, I mean, it's also so difficult to sort of unpick. I mean, you talked about the Premier League, um, the owners and directors test, for example. I mean, these things, those things aren't part of it. The human rights issues aren't part of it or not, you know, not. I mean, do I think they should be? Yes, I do, actually. I do. But, you know, according to the according to the rules that are there at the moment, Newcastle have gone gone through and. To people who say that this is a line in the sand, um, I totally get that, and I, I mean, I, you know, I, you know, I feel that as well. But there've been plenty of other lines in the sands in the, in the in the Premier League over the last kind of couple of decades. Whether it's Russian involvement, whether it's Chinese involvement, whether it's Americans using a club's own money to buy a club, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And in many ways, is this the worst of a bad lot? Yeah, it is, but it's the rules. It's it's the rules of the Premier League, and they've and they've and I kind of feel I feel I feel desperately sorry for Newcastle fans that they're sort of having to become spokespeople for 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 a, a regime that they've had no say in. 
They've had no say in this decision. Yes, a vast majority support it, but they've had no say in this. They're the people who haven't um, who haven't had a, a choice in it. They've seen their club get transferred from one billionaire to a lot of, you know, to, to richer billionaires, but without being able to do anything about it. We've been talking for, what, 10 minutes, and we could talk for a thousand minutes. I'm sure I you th- will. I, th- I think you will be on other podcasts. It's already starting to pour out in pieces. I urge you lot to go read them. We really have scratched the surface here. This is the most remarkable takeover I have ever covered. Unquestionably. Remarkable. My gob is smacked. I think this is the beginning, actually. Oh, I think so, yes. <laughs> I, I, I think really so, do. yeah. I really I think do. So. Look, thanks so much for your time. Let's now move on with the rest of the podcast where we're going to talk about another takeover that hasn't gone through. Chapman, welcome to the Business of Sport podcast on The Athletic. Matt Slater with us as usual. Coming up on this pod, we'll talk to Nasib Piriev, the man who is the head of a consortium trying to buy Premier League club West Ham. The Athletic's Joey Durso will join us as well for a big update on a story he's been leading on, the collapse of Football Index. We'll hear from two people who have lost hundreds of thousands of pounds. Our first guest today is Nassib Piriev, an Azerbaijan-born British-educated businessman who heads up PAI Capital that claims to have made a bid for the Premier League club West Ham. However, the club's chairman and majority shareholder, David Sullivan, dismissed the offer, describing it as derisory and claimed the London-based group never produced any proof of funds. Nassib, thank you very much for joining us. A very simple question to start. Why do you want to own a Premier League football club? First of all, it's exciting and fun uh, for any person uh, to own a club in such a league. Secondly, and and most importantly, it's a business project. It's part of a larger project that we're trying to do together with the uh, LLDC, uh, with the London Legacy Development Corporation. And um, we would like to to, uh, develop the park further. It's it's an amazing opportunity to create, to, to make it more attractive um, uh, for Londoners and for tourists. Also, at, at the heart of the park, there is a multi-purpose uh, venue, this, the London Stadium, which uh, could be used for great concerts and various other sporting events uh, like athletics and uh, baseball. There is a comprehensive plan uh, of development, the whole area, but uh, obviously the club is the most important part of the project. Uh, not only it is uh, an important tenant and uh, an, an important part of the community, but also it's, it's, it can be a commercially viable uh, uh, project if, if there are some changes done in the way it's run. And most importantly, it should be part of this bigger proposition. Uh, all these three assets should work as one. And uh, I mean, the park, the stadium and the club uh, adding value to each other. That's that's the plan. But it is the most important part, is it? Because if I was a West Ham fan and I've just heard, you know, stadium and concerts and baseball and development at the park, I'd be going, all right, great, but I want us to build on being in Europe and whatever else we can do. So is it the most important part? 
Definitely, absolutely, it is the most important part. And the, the reason why the whole thing is not working today, in my own opinion, is because this important part is not working uh, properly and uh, it's not driving everything else. We've had these responses from, from fan groups that uh, uh, some people saying, well, we don't care about uh, the surroundings and the park and the stadium. What are you going to do with the club? Well, we have tried to answer, the, uh, to answer uh, about that, but I think it's uh, fair to look at the park and the stadium as integral parts because the, the club now lives there. It's the home of the club. And these surroundings, which are amazing, they should help with, uh, with the experience, with, with the fan experience. It's, it's part of the bigger attraction. It's part of West Ham becoming a more, something bigger than a local club, which is the transition period that now the club is experiencing. And of course, the traditional uh, fan base of the club might find it a bit challenging, but uh, uh, I believe they should be more open-minded and uh, understand that the club is becoming... Uh, uh, an international brand. I don't want to use the word brand, it's, uh, but maybe it's uh, an international phenomenon because West Ham is, um, uh, is, is such a strong, has such a strong tradition uh, and history. So, but it's, it's, just, it's just undervalued. When you say it's not working properly, where is it not working properly? Because, because <laughs> there'll be quite a few West Ham fans who might, and in fact, non-West Ham fans who look at what they did last season, where they are in terms of football, some of the players they've brought in, the rise of Declan Rice, they've got, actually, we're probably working better than we have done for quite a long time. Yes, absolutely. And uh, we are kind of happy for the club on one side, happy for the team. On the other side, maybe we were a bit uh, unlucky without the timing of our bid. Uh, when we started the uh, conversations back in uh, November 2019, the club was doing okay and before that the season was quite they had quite a difficult season and very close to relegation zone and when you look at the at the history of the last 10 years it's been uh, it, it hasn't been a, a, you know perfect on the pitch as well today the club is doing well and uh, thanks to david moyes and and the team uh, the coaching team they've they've done extremely well however if you look at um, basic uh, genuine problems of the club they're still there and there is uh, there is lack of strategic cooperation within the park and the stadium which is very important there is lack of communication with the supporters the way it should be i don't want to uh, criticize too much because of our position as bidders we still are interested in the club and we always find it difficult to be in in this confrontational uh, situation with the current owners because we still want to do business with them, meaning to complete the deal and, and you know, pay them so they just go. But on the other hand, we do have strong views about how, which changes the club should have. Uh, and there is a lot of issues with the training staff, etc., which uh, need to be addressed. These changes will bring uh, long-term uh, stability and sustainability to the club rather than depending on just sort of sparks of uh, good form on the pitch. Uh, this club needs to have a more long-term development strategy. And right now, the strategy is, I would say, very commercial or even mercantile. Now, see, I, I do want to get back into your negotiations with the current owners, David Sullivan, David Gold in particular, and just how they have responded to your bid. I, I do want to get into that. But before I do, can I just double check. I mean, it, it is really interesting and you're not the, the first 
person, the first group that has discussed the potential of the stadium, the potential of the park. And of course, that then does bring into the fact that you know, the West Ham, the tenants have had a testy relationship with their, with their landlords, but they also have an amazing deal. They have one of the best, most sweet rental deals of any football club in the world. Are you going to unpick that? I think the deal, again, it's good on, well, if you look at it from short-term perspective. It is a, it, it's, it's a good bargain if you are doing something right now, right here. But the club doesn't own its own stadium, which is very important for a club to have in its, on its balance, on its, on its books. You have to own your own ground. Do you, though? Do you, though? They've got a very long-term lease. Isn't that as good? No, because you are just a tenant. You have 19 games that you play there and go, and you cannot develop further. Nothing can be actually actioned before we uh, take over the club, but there's been a lot of discussions with LLDC about potentially what can be built in the park to support the club. Do you have a background in, in sporting organisations and sporting operation or not? Do you mean me, myself? Yeah, you yourself, yeah. yeah. No. I, or, and, and the bid as a whole. Of course, we have uh, top people looking at all this opportunity. We've, we've done a lot of statements about that. I came here mostly to answer a few questions about the current situation and uh, what is the owner's position. Most of our members, including me, were bound by the non-disclosure agreements, but I will try to kind of navigate as much as possible around those. When it comes to professional background of our uh, team uh, members and managers, uh, we can answer to that question. And one of them is, is Phil Beard, who, who was chief executive at QPR and ran the O2, worked for AEG, big sports entertainment company. So, so yes, I know that you do have some expertise in the group. But if we get back to the state of negotiations with the current owners, they're not going very well, are they? You know, you made a first bid and there was a response that said it was derisory and was a bit rude about your group. I understand there's been a second bid. I understand that you have raised it, obviously, and you, you, have, you have met the price that you thought they wanted. What, what's going on? Do they keep moving the goalposts? Do they just keep asking for a bit more or do, or do they just not like you? I think in business, there are some situations where there is a stalemate because because of the timing of the of the uh, event. And we, we when we approached them, the club wasn't doing well. The pricing that they offered to us, which is all, uh, all can be evidenced, it's all in, in, in emails, et cetera, it was all formal. That pricing worked for us. We, we looked at it, we agreed, and we decided to go forward. Was it around 400 million? Well, the releases that were previously, the, the, the discussions in the news, were quite accurate. We didn't make those statements, but they were quite accurate. Someone uh, obviously uh, initially started this uh, leak of information. And to be honest, I expected David Sullivan just to ignore it because, well, it's football. Every summer, someone wants to buy some club or you know, can do it or cannot do it. It's just gossip and rumor and it's fine. It's part of the industry. I thought he would ignore it. Well, instead, there was a there was quite uh, a, a rude reaction, and so uh, our partner Phil Beard decided that it's the right thing to uh, to answer publicly. We supported him. I actually had COVID during that period. I, I was nowhere near trying to uh, actually start some kind of public debate. We don't want this, uh, and that's not the way to do these type of deals. Unfortunately, we were amassed by these uh, requests and qu questions 
And we have a, um, a rule. I have a rule in business, actually. Uh, when there is an invite or a question from media, when the journalist wants to ask something about our business, we have to reply. We never ignore. And we always are proactive and interactive with, with media. Mm-hmm. That's my rule. Uh, as long as it doesn't concern pri- private and personal uh, information, we as owners of business, I strongly believe where it's our duty to, to actually reply and keep the press and the public uh, in knowledge about what we are doing, especially in football or sports. And so when there were so many requests for information, of course, we did statements, we did interviews, we tried to explain who we are, what's our background and why we think uh, we would be uh, suitable owners for for West Ham. Then we did the, the second bid because the first bid was rejected based on price. So we, we have looked at the way to make the bid a bit more creative. Uh, with that, we could increase the price. Creative meaning that we would suggest the current owners to stay for some period and then uh, enjoy enjoy this current wave of good form and, and then pass on to the new club custodian, let's say. And they can keep their chin up, uh, etc. But we would be in the background working to, uh, to the finances of the club. David Sullivan and David Gold as, as life presidents, for example? For example, I mean, these things obviously will not be too popular with the current uh, supporters, I must say. It's just, it's just what we see. But um, it could be, if, if that's the way that they would want uh, t- to do it, we, we are open to that as long as we would take control of the club. That would always be the main uh, condition. I must ask you because it is, I mean, to be, to be fair to you, you're, you're right. First of all, you've agreed to do this interview and you did respond when I, for example, contacted you. You were very quick to respond. Right. So you have, you have been accessible. There is a question that keeps coming up about your group, though, and it's this issue of proof of funds, like can you actually access the funds you say you have? I'm not suggesting there's any money laundering going on here, but I know because I speak to people all the time about deals, particularly when they're bringing money in from outside the country, the UK's anti-money laundering rules make that difficult. Are you able to get your hands on the money you need to close this deal? The answer is yes, and it's all very... um Clear, it can be clearly evidence, and it was. Uh, we did send all the proof of funds. The discussion about uh, the lack of proof of funds is artificially created when probably the other side tried to come up with some uh, excuse, uh, to some explanation why they just keep rejecting uh, our bids. But uh, actually, with the second one, we made sure that uh, there is no more speculation about proof of funds, because at some point that even is kind of damaging as well. So we made sure there is. And there is, if you see now, there is no discussion about that. He just says that I don't want to sell. It's not the right time. So what is it then? Was it uh, the lack of proof of funds or, or do you want, don't want to sell? It's, it's very unclear. Our bid, our uh, money, our funds, it's all here in Britain. It's British funds. We are a British consortium. Uh, Me, myself, I moved here uh, six years ago, but uh, everybody else, the partners who are behind the bid and backing this, we're all based in London. The money is here. And it's it's not difficult to evidence that. What is the situation with your father and dispute he's having with, is it the Azerbaijani government and this Interpol arrest warrants. Is, is that now resolved? Is that going to be a problem for you and the owners and directors test? Not at all, because what happened uh, six, seven years ago back in Azerbaijan, it's now a subject of a, a legal dispute. 
the Interpol red notice was revoked uh, very soon because, and it was revoked by Interpol, and uh, it was uh, they decided that it, 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 there was lack of validity. I love my country. I'm a patriot. I like Azerbaijan, but there are many issues in the country, and. Unfortunately, we had political motivated uh, scandal around our assets, so we had to fight back. And uh, on the other hand, it's just a legal dispute, nothing more. So all these uh, rumors on arrests and uh, Interpol, all of that were created to push us out of business. So it was a business kind of dispute, and that's the way things happen in, in, in our region. Those are the so-called uh, country risks and political risks. There's been a lot of work after that by our family to uh, uh, right this wrong. And although the legal uh, dispute is still not over, but uh, we see absolutely no risk here, uh, risk of passing the fit and proper test because all of these can be explained and uh, factually evidenced and proven. You are no longer the subject of an Interpol arrest notice? No, absolutely not. And uh, when one of the journalists, I think, uh, from the Times asked for some proof, we did send even a package of information on documents because we are very open when it comes to uh, confirming Everything we've said verbally, we, we are ready to confirm with evidence, with facts and documents. In the course of trying to buy a Premier League club, as, as well as talking to the club you're trying to buy, do you have to be in discussions with the Premier League or does that only happen once an offer has been accepted? Although theoretically you would approach them only once there is at least a term sheet signed and agreed, uh, in practice, obviously... Uh, in, you know, within football circles, you already start discussing and, and talking about this just to understand the criteria, to be, uh, to be aware of what will be needed. And we've looked at that in, at length and in depth, and we see absolutely no risk of uh, not being able to pass the fit and proper test uh, because there is, there is nothing that can create a problem. But formally, we have not approached them. Uh, we will need to first at least have a handshake with the current owners, which is proving to be very difficult. And on it's, we don't understand, actually, what's, what's the issue and why. So just to clarify, your offer to buy the club is still on the table? Uh, hope springs eternal. We will always be there. I love the club. We all, we, I've supported it since I was a little child. And we, we do want to do this project. Our offer is on the table. We will not increase it anymore. It's it's been. We will not. Uh, we will not increase the price again. It's already inflated by far, and we are sure nobody will be able to meet this uh, price expectation. We are able to do it just because it's part of a bigger uh, business project. Our offer is also about injecting uh, equity, new equity, into the club, and we will not drop that condition. We, would, we want to buy the club and inject money into the club, and that is part of the deal. So not only the, the current owners get there, get quite a high valuation on the price, on, the, on their shares, but also we will inject in our last bid, we did disclose that it was 150 million pounds of new money that would be injected into the club in order to partially clear the debt and invest into the playing squad. Third condition is that, yeah, this will be single ownership of the club and the, uh, and the stadium. So these are the three pillars on which our offer stands. And, and I'm sorry, to answer your question, yes, the offer is on the table and we would like to have a proper closed door discussions with the owner. But uh, anything we do, it 
just uh, is, is now rejected. Do you think they've got another buyer? Um, there might be some investors who would want to put in money into the club. I have no idea what would be the rationale to do that for somebody to put uh, to, to, to buy a non-controlling stake in a club which doesn't own its own stadium, which has 150 million of debt, 160, I think, even, uh, right now. And what would be the point for anyone to do that unless it's another kind of some kind of vanity play and then uh, you know someone just wants to play with uh, with a club which was a trend at some point but now the trend is different business owning a business club is a serious business and it's not it's not a toy and it, and it can easily go very wrong and you can lose a lot of money even if you are a billionaire can hurt. My answer to you is I don't know. I don't expect anybody to put in more money. I just think the old, the, old, the main owner is just enjoying having his best time of his life. Well, it's fun. You said at the beginning, it's fun. It is fun. And in these last 10, 11 years, probably this is the time they've been waiting for. And uh, now the team is playing well. And um, from that side, I'm happy. I mean, I was at, uh, at the Brentford game and we lost. And that that feeling of losing, uh, actually, we haven't had that for quite some time. That's it. One more for me. If it's not West Ham, if you, you know, you've, you've developed a plan and you've, you've clearly got money that you can, you can access and you say you've got a good team, et cetera, et cetera, and you, you like the sport, you're full of energy. If it's not West Ham, would you buy someone else? Because, I mean, I, I'm led to believe you have looked at other clubs. I don't know if you want to talk about it. I, I think you made an offer for Marseille. We never actually made an offer. Uh, we only looked at it, but this is football. As soon as there is some discussion, some LOIs or some even slight, you know, even some meetings, the fans start to uh, talk about it. And this comes with the business. I'm, I'm now used to it. Uh, Marcel is an amazing club, but we never made uh, a, an offer. It was also linked to some development plans in that city, but we never took it forward. So it never actually started as a business relationship. But already there was some leakage, there were some bloggers writing about it, and that will forever be there because Google doesn't forget anything. <laughs> so, but we would, if we would look at other clubs, but I would, I'm interested in the club in London. Believe it or not, uh, West Ham is close to my heart. It's still going to be number one in the priority list. And it's a beautiful and uh, amazing opportunity. There's so much to be done. If we look at any other club, I must say it will be more pragmatic, more business approach, and it would be a smaller club. You know, there is a few uh, that are struggling. There is interesting opportunities around Derby, around Hull. You know, there is interesting ones which you can buy and then and then bring up. Uh, and there is so much uh, going on. We feel there will be some shifts in the in the industry, and there will be new sort of uh, pockets of uh, profits. Uh, potential available for these clubs. Even the whole media cash flow will probably change. More new uh, channels of distributions will come in. We're also looking at what will be with the regulation. Will there be some additional regulatory uh, scrutiny added to clubs and ownership and operation? So th there is many uh, uh, risks that we need to uh, assess before making these decisions. Is it easier to buy a club in administration than one that isn't? It depends on the situation, uh, and it depends on the assets that are there, on on the uh, on on the financial situation. But of course, it's easier to buy something which is distressed, turn it around, and and create value, uh, rather than buy something at its peak when it's doing well. 
there is not an, there is not much room for improvement. Uh, I must say, West Ham is a unique opportunity because it gives you both. It it is although it seems like it's at its peak, but it's not. There is much more value there to be unlocked. But it is it is a distress if you look at it from a from a long term perspective. The club is distressed. And I'm sorry I keep coming back to West Ham. But I think that's really interesting in all of these discussions because from a football fan's point of view, if you bought Derby and they got promoted and played West Ham, who would you support? I would support West Ham because football is football. It's irrational. You can't control the emotions. It's just crazy. You know, to be to be very frank, from business perspective, we would like the club to lose now, to, to lose the form. But when I go to that stadium, I shout like a child uh, supporting <laughs> the team to win. And there is nothing you can do about this. But from business side, of course, you know, there will be different interests if we go into another club. Thank you very much for joining us this morning, Nassib. Much appreciated. Okay, thank you. Many thanks. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com courtside to learn more. This episode is supported by FX's Welcome to Wrexham. Celebrity owners Rob McElhenney and Ryan Reynolds' small-town Welsh football club has finally been promoted into League Two after 15 seasons in the National League. Dedicated staff and supporters celebrate the team's return to glory while bracing for the newfound challenges that come with being in a higher league. Will Wrexham AFC stand up to the challenge and rise again into League One? FX is welcome to Wrexham. All new Thursdays on FX. Stream on Hulu. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard it right. You can talk to a real human in customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask me. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Well, we're now joined on the pod by the Athletics Investigations writer, Joey Durso. Joey joined us earlier this year when the gambling website Football Index, marketed as a virtual stock market for footballers, collapsed. How it worked was that player shares traded for money online and users earned cash dividends based on the footballers' real-life performance on the pitch. Since then, the UK's Gambling Commission and Financial Conduct Authority, FCA, have been heavily criticised in a review commissioned by the British government. And Joey, you've got a further exclusive development that is up on The Athletic on Thursday morning. Yes, yeah, so Football Index is a company that was ubiquitous in football, sponsored QPR, Nottingham Forest, all over the telly, um, even sponsored some athletic 
podcast um, obviously collapsed spectacularly, like you said. I've got this exclusive document prepared by accountants BDO and basically shows that £15 million was moved from one company, Bet Index, to another company, Index Labs, for this Project Hadron, which was this almost kind of conspiracy theory in the football index community, this idea that the company was expanding internationally. It was mentioned occasionally on podcasts, but never formally announced. This proves it was a real thing. It was planning to expand to Germany, to India and the USA to create a German football product, a cricket product in India, and then based on the uh, American sports, NFL, NBA in the USA. Now, the reason people are so kind of scandalized by this is that they think their money, which they've now lost, went to this company to finance speculative ventures abroad. And they were never going to benefit from this platform because what the dream was was some sort of integrated international platform where you could, as a Brit, trade with someone in Germany or India but the document showed that that was nonsense. That wasn't going to happen because gambling laws are very different in different countries. So they wouldn't have been able to trade with each other. So their money was used to speculate on these foreign products. They were never going to benefit from it. So lots of the Football Index users who have been devastated personally by the collapse are quite upset about this. Joey, you've, you've been to Jersey, haven't you? You've been to Football Index's HQ to, to sort of have a look around. What did, what did you find? I did. I went to Jersey for a, for a day trip a few weeks ago. It's a funny place. It's just about a 40-minute flight from London, much closer to the French coast, actually. Um, it feels just like a sort of southern English town. I thought it feels like a very wealthy place, you know, lots of smart clothes shops and whatever else. All over our shop fronts for, you know, trust, asset, management, this, and because Jersey is it's not part of the United Kingdom. It's something called a crown dependency, which means it has a different legal system and has been you know, criticised for financial secrecy. There's been lots of dirty money basically stashed offshore in Jersey over the years. Companies, particularly gambling companies, like to have their headquarters in places like Jersey because of different tax rules. You pay less tax. Lots of the other big gambling firms have their headquarters in Gibraltar or Guernsey. But I found this little shared office where um, was supposedly Football Index's headquarters. And it was a kind of quite a nondescript little um, building on Wharf Street in St. Helier. Uh, there's a little printing company next to it. There was a, a tiki bar, a pool bar. It wasn't some glamorous sort of marble office by any means. And I found the number 32, which is the address on all the football index. And I knocked on the door, no one answered. But I found the um, floor plan which showed it was nine square metres. So that's, um, yeah, literally not room to swing a cat. Nine, three metres by three metres. So there was one desk and one chair, and that was the um, the company headquarters. By having their HQ there, d- does that does that alter how the UK, I mentioned UK's Gambling Commission and Financial Conduct Authority, by basing themselves in Jersey, does that alter the jurisdiction in any way? This whole issue is just always very complicated, and there's companies and there's different jurisdictions, and the more, you know, and, and money would move from one company to another and one jurisdiction to another. And what I kind of increasingly get the impression of is no one really understood this. And the Gambling Commission has kind of, you know, said that and some of their, that came out in the report last week. And that just meant that this ridiculous business model was able to carry on for so long. And no one really realised until the whole thing collapsed that it didn't work. And, you know, by BBS in Jersey, as I said, it's, it's to do with tax and it's to do with regulation. You know, United Kingdom MPs are furious about this. But the company was not headquartered in the United Kingdom, which makes things harder when you're trying to pass rules to stop it happening again. We're going to hear on the pod a, a couple of interviews that you've done with uh, Football Index customers who were affected by the collapse. Yeah, and the first person you'll hear who spoke to us on condition of anonymity is part of the Football Index Action Group who are trying to raise awareness of what's been happening to them. And this person lost a very substantial amount of money. And I started by asking him to explain what exactly is in this document seen by The Athletic that outlined the global plans of the owners of Football Index. 
I mean, in a nutshell, it confirms that at least £40 million has been spent on developing the software. Now, that money came from Football Index consumers. Index Labs only had one customer. That was Football Index. And um, it can only come from the stakes that consumers have placed with uh, the Football Index uh, betting platform. In its essence, your money was used for this kind of speculative gamble on going to Germany, going to India, going to the USA. They're the three countries that have been um, targeted in the document. Now, Football Index, prior to the collapse of the platform, were very bullish about their expansion plans internationally. So this wasn't a, this isn't a surprise for consumers of the product. People say, you know, oh, you know, of course, if you gamble, you you expect to lose money. That's that's built into what gambling is, but. People who use the platform, like you argue, it's different to that, isn't it? Because the platform itself collapsed. Well, the platform itself gambled with our money. You know, they've taken our money and have now produced a software platform that is only 40% complete. Uh, That was the other shocking feature within the BDO Mm. document that was shared. It's getting on for two years since this project was conceived and commenced. £40 million later with plans to expand into Germany in January 2022 and they're less than half complete. So, you know, it's effectively worthless. I mean, you know, a software project that's 40% complete that costs £14 million, I can't see many potential purchases for that. Um, and therefore that money has gone. My understanding is that there was all this hype about Football Index internationally, Football Index Germany, Football Index India, and that made... UK customers put more money in, right? Yeah, I suppose there was probably a, um, an overexcitement about being an early adopter. So, and right. and the financial rewards that would bring. You know, Bitcoin has been and 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 um, these virtual currencies have been in the news a lot recently because, um, yeah, as as more people buy a finite a finite um, resource, the price will go up. If you imagine someone's listening to this who's barely heard of it, you know, this sort of scandal in the background, they, they don't really understand it. Is there anything that they should understand about all this? Well, that consumers who entered into this very uh, new and very, uh, I mean, I'll give credit where credit dues, exciting platform that was regulated in the UK as well as Jersey, have had their money effectively just taken £124 million of open bets. So bets that had time to expire. um, And... One of the documents says that the vast majority of those had had a minimum of three years to expire. Um, that was the that was the notional term of the bet, even though it was never enforced. Also, the fact that the uh, directors of the companies were so bullish in their plans, and you know, people started to ask questions. Of, you know, uh, accounts were filed late, etc. But the answer was always the same for the directors and the staff who would be led by them. We have never been in a stronger financial. Uh, position. Uh, We are very cash strong. We have exciting plans for 2021 and we have an excellent track record in paying dividends each and every day. I mean, it's been a devastating time for uh, consumers. I mean, as a a member of the the, the FI Action Group, we have over 9,000 followers on Twitter. um, And the stories we've heard about people who are, you know, have cashed in their ISAs, have put all their savings in. Uh, There's even people who took out credit and were actually encouraged in the early days by the CEO to say, this is such a good product, max out your credit cards. And as long as the dividends and the growth are paying more than that back, then it's a good investment. Uh, So there's people out there who 
took out £25,000 loans, maxed out credit cards, and now have no portfolio that they can access and no dividends coming in from uh, winning bets that they chose. Would you mind sharing how much you personally lost? I don't mind at all, no. So my net deposits uh, over a two and a half year period into the collapse were £104,000. I would not put £104,000 on black in a casino or on a horse at the Grand National. If I had put £104,000 on a horse at the Grand National and it fell at the first or at Beaches Brook or whatever, that's my, that's my issue. That's my mistake. But to have put £104,000 on a horse and it be winning or placed jumping the last and suddenly the, the bookmaker shuts the uh, shutters at Aintree. That's kind of the analogy that I think a lot of people who aren't familiar with the um, with the story behind the index need to understand. Um, not all bets were winning, but we didn't have the opportunity to lose them. I thought one of the interesting things that he mentions, Joey, is the attract- comparing football index to, to cryptocurrency, which... which- is already something you're looking at as well as football. Some football clubs are moving towards this. So I'm not, I'm not saying everything's going to go wrong with cryptocurrency, but maybe we should be asking a lot more questions about that, bearing in mind that none of us really asked questions about football index until it was too late. Yeah, I mean, I've done a lot of stuff about cryptocurrency and football. I think there are a lot of similarities because, you know, of course you might all lose your money. Disclaimer, the Financial Conduct Authority says invest in cryptocurrency, you might lose all your money. But lots of people have actually made lots of money and lots of people listening to this will know someone whose mate, whose brother bought a new house because he bought Bitcoin back in 2017. And then the same thing with Football Index. You know, there are lots of people devastated by it, but there are people who pulled out the money at the right time who have just, you know, bought a house extension or something. So there are real stories of people who have got rich off this. People have got rich quick. Um, so it's not quite as simple as just saying, oh, you, you know, everyone's financially ruined by it because some people aren't, but it's hugely risky. And just, you know... Don't put money into things that you can't afford to lose. And yeah, just following up from from Mark's point, you know, obviously we've talked a lot in, in in recent weeks on this on this podcast as well about the fact that gambling sponsors are are likely to to leave the industry, and you know, certainly in terms of being on the front of shirts. So it's very likely that gambling companies will be putting you know less money in the short term into football. And I think everyone's already kind of leaping ahead to the next obvious place that football clubs are going to replace that sponsorship income from. You know, so this is something we need to be across now. We need to just massively gen up on this stuff, don't we? Because otherwise we're just going to repeat these mistakes. Yeah, and I think there's lots of stuff moving to football now that is incredibly hard to get your head around. If you look at the Italian leagues, some of the big Italian clubs, these cryptocurrency firms, which I struggle to understand, and I've been spending months looking into this. I mean, another thing is these sort of financial trading apps, foreign exchange. I mean, you might think of foreign exchange as like swapping your pounds into euros to go on holiday. This is something very different. It's leverage bets on the price of currencies. So that mean, leverage means that you can put in a hundred pounds. You know, if you gamble, if you bet a hundred quid on the football at the weekend, you might lose a hundred pounds. If you make a leverage bet, you might lose 10,000 pounds. So there are lots of, there are lots of clubs in the sponsor, Premier League sponsored by these kind of companies and very few people really understand them. So it's potentially even more dangerous than gambling. The next person we're going to hear from here, Joey, lost an even greater amount. Yes, again, this person agreed to speak to us on condition of anonymity. Not only did he lose £215,000, he also has um, suffered a heart attack and has understandably been in a very difficult place mentally. My life's already been turned upside down with this whole situation. I can't afford to be more disruption to it, but at the same time, 
with everything that's happened, well, obviously not just to myself, to the thousands of people who've had horrific experiences of, of the situation, people need to stand up and be heard. Take us back to the start, Football Index. When did you first hear about it? When did you first get into it? I originally... <laughs> Unfortunately for myself, stumbled across Football Index by chance in October 2018 when it was very heavily marketed as a well as the football stock market, which to be fair, it always it always was marketed as. There was a lot of very strong stories and feel-good stories from people who, who were making on paper at least large sums of money from investing in the football stock market in in something that a lot of us would would, would feel we know quite well as in football um, and and from my personal circumstances is I'd always uh, had an interest in investing in stocks and shares and I saw it as a soft introduction I guess to to, to that world and and just a way to to almost practice sort of trading stocks and shares, but in something that which I instantly knew about. Obviously, yeah, as times uh, as time's gone on, I personally found that I was making, well, on paper, uh, an awful lot of money, um, a lot of profit, and that's what Football Index, uh, as a website and as a portal, which is completely designed around mimicking stocks and share trading. Basically, I mean, I started off, relatively softly and quickly saw that there was an opportunity to, in inverted commas, make money. Um, hence why I ended up relatively quickly at a investment total, deposit total of about 25,000. 25,000 pounds of real money that you'd deposited yeah. into the platform, which had yeah, turned exactly. into a much bigger number on your screen. But Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and that 25,000 had turned into 38, 39,000 on the, on the screen um, uh, metrics. You got twenty five thousand in this platform now, and then then what happened? I got twenty five thousand in it, um, and then that was probably around about early two thousand nineteen, which is around the time we realised the gambling commission was investigating around March twenty nineteen. It's actually right, yeah. If they'd have done what what the report, um, uh, well, from what I understand, the report told them to do, which was actually to act at that point, um, instead of ending up with a life-shattering amount of money invested, which is, is just over £200,000 um, net deposits that I personally invested, um, I would have I would have uh, lost, say, 25000 at most. But the reality is I wouldn't have done because the company would have been round up and would have actually had assets, which probably would have serviced at least well, the majority of, of that money. But yeah, no, it's... yeah. That is exactly right. You're correct. So then how much money did you end up putting in eventually? Net deposits ended up being um, just about over £200,000. £200,000. Wow. Yeah. Which is a crazy amount of money. And that's to be honest with you, um, as things stand, not only has it um, well shattered my life financially, it's going to have a knock-on effect for my children's lives and obviously push, pushing on through. I've obviously got to take some responsibility for what's happened, but ultimately, for me, the Gambling Commission, as you rightly mentioned, early in 2019, knew there was issues. It, it seems to me that they've allowed, and I always use the word investors for my personal circumstances, just because that's how I viewed it um, and how it's portrayed to us, but they've allowed 
investors or customers, the Gambling Commission. This is to basically to be experimented on to see whether football index could trade their way out of the the hole which the Gambling Commission had allow them to get into by mis um licensing the, the the product in the first place and and they've basically yeah they, they they've allowed people like myself to to get into a situation which which is life shattering there's no two ways about that to be honest do you think you'd be able to get any of that money back i would love to say yes i would love to say yes um and to be honest with you i i personally feel if the UK government at the end of the day the UK government and I'm right you're wrong I don't know if I should say this or not I'm a conservative I always have been whatever else so I'm so I'm backing this government um but the reality is with it this government by way of the gambling commission and by way of the gambling commission have licensed this company um to provide the product they've backed it and by it by it being licensed by the government they have put their name to it if there isn't full redress or at least a significant portion of uh, redress what 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 is the point in having anything uh, licensed having everything regulated having anything it was sponsoring Nottingham Forest Football Club sponsoring Queen's Park Rangers so legitimate things with legitimate if the government don't do anything about it what is the point in them as things stand, and unless the unless the powers that be, the MPs in this country, who, who I'm sure will be aware of this, and and the relevant, you know, sort of government things, unless they stand up to be counted for and do what's right, who knows? I, I don't think we'll get anything from the business. Because I I can't really say too much about that, but um, but yeah, the I, I can't see there being much from the liquidation of the company because I don't think there'd be been that much funds available for it. And I mean this, I hope to God and I hope for my family's sake and forgetting me, um, I'm, I've got my own personal circumstances. I might have 200 and 200 odd thousand, which I've in a, at this moment in time lost. But, but there's other people who've got 5,000 pounds, 10,000 pounds, even like 2,000 pounds, 500 pounds, which for their life circumstances is life-changing and horrific, to be honest. For, for their own situations, there's people who are in a very, very, very dark place. Will you have to speak a bit more about what effect it's had on you and your family? Parking the, the financial issues, I'm sort of like mid, I'm between the age, I'm between my mid-30s and mid-40s. Uh, I've never really had any health issues in the past, certainly nothing serious. And then two weeks ago, out of nowhere, um, I have a heart attack, which obviously I'm trying to keep my blood pressure. <laughs> my, my thing can't calm now as we're speaking. But yeah, I, I had a heart attack. Luckily, I was in a position where I could get to hospital in time to have the operations that were needed to 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 stop, well, to stop me from dying is the reality of it. Let's be honest with really. you. And stop me from dying, but yeah, I've I've had a heart attack, and for, for the rest of my life, I'm now going to be on uh, multiple tablets a day. Yeah, and I've got to be careful. But like I said, I had no health issues at all before, no warnings of this or anything else, and you never fully know. But as it would appear, this whole situation's definitely had a 
a massive effect on what's happened to me physically. Just the sheer stress of losing so much money. To be honest, it's the stress of it, but it's, it's also compounded by not knowing what's happening um, in terms of what, what, well, what is happening. As you've rightly said, do, do we, do I think, or we think as a, as a group of victims, because we are victims, do, do we, do we know, do we think we're going to get any money back or any redress or anything else? The reality is with it, this happened in, I think it was like, uh, was it middle, end of March, something like that, when it happened. We're now like the first, well, we're now in October. You've mentioned the phrase, this personal responsibility. And it's just, you know, you kind of see in the comments of people on Twitter or whatever else saying, you know, I don't think anyone could listen to this and not feel like incredible sympathy for you and what you've, you've been through. But you people who say, oh, you know, it's a bunch of gamblers, you know, that's how you lose, lose all your money. What, what, what would you say to that? I can understand why people might say that. The only time I've ever gambled before this, if you want to call it that, and I still don't, for me personally, the majority of my money was put in when it, as an investment. And that is the reason it was put in. It wasn't put in there, oh, I, I hope that um, uh, Paul Pogba is going to play well in this season or whatever else. It was put in as an investment. People always say about, gam- about football index and gambling. And yes, technically, it is gambling because that is how it was supposedly regulated by the Gambling Commission. From my point of view, the way I feel it is well, 15, 20 years ago, if I'd have been investing in stocks and shares and I'd have bought shares in Woolworths or BHS or something like that there, I would have thought I had a great investment. Ultimately, stocks and shares ultimately is gambling. When you buy, when people bought shares in Woolworths, they were gambling on Woolworths becoming a, well, staying a successful business, which didn't happen. And that's the same as with Football Index, with somebody buying Paul Pogba and basically Paul Pogba in the next day playing a game against uh, Newcastle and breaking his leg in two places and never playing a game. Yes, you'd have lost your money at that point, but you'd expect to. The majority of the people aren't problem gamblers. They're good, hardworking, everyday people, people that are educated from all walks of life who have basically been lied to, been let down by the Gambling Commission and, and basically put in a position where life-changing sums, and what's a life-changing sum to me would be different to what's a life changing some to somebody else. You say over two hundred thousand pounds, which you know to a lot of people is more than yeah. their house is worth. Is more money they can ever earn in ten years. I mean, what? So, how much does that mean to you now? Do you do you have enough to get by? I'm in a position where I'm very fortunate mentally. I'm I'm very fortunate that I've got a very supportive, loving family. If I didn't have that, God knows well be you. I probably would have been a heart attack, which would have been the problem. If, if we're pretty honest there. Um, in terms of financially, I mean, that's to be honest with you, that amount of money has a profound and grave effect on my life. I, I, I'm not going to be, I'm not living on the streets because of it. I hope that over time I can recuperate, you know, some of the money. The reality is, though, it's made a massive difference to me. I mean, I was, it was set aside for a project, which to be fair is for my whole family. And, and I've got horrific guilt that I've basically completely messed up, not just for myself, but for my young family and, and other, my, older, my parents and, and different things. So I've got horrific guilt about that there. I've got to take some personal responsibility for that. But as a person, I'm well-educated, well-traveled, 
I understand business. I've got a successful business. I've, I've worked for some very big companies and, and I've got nothing but but guilt and shame basically for messing up as badly as I as I have with it. But like I said, I am fortunate and this is the thing that I hold on to that I've got such a brilliant family and uh, wife and, and different things that have, that have been f- phenomenal in, in, in not allowing this to completely mentally beat me. Um, and financial, like I said, it's it's horrific for me. But but like I said, I am very aware that there's other people who who well, not that I know of people on on the football index community who basically they might have lost two thousand, five thousand, but but those guys literally are on the streets afterwards. Um, and that is oh, and having to stay on friends and family sofas and different things. And I'm eternally grateful that that isn't the case for me. I'm not trying to be on here to be like kind of some big crybaby and kind of um oh look at me i'll please feel sorry for me it's far from it the point of me coming on here is to speak from my point of view but isn't to speak for me it's to try and help as many people as possible who've been put through hell by this and literally put through hell by, by this whole situation and just to hope that somebody out there, whether it's a political person, an MP, anything, listens to this here and actually realises the severity of the situation, not just to somebody like me, but to everybody in, in the situation um, and, and, and hopefully helps. Well, that's, yeah, just a remarkable story. And I've, I've, it reminds me of, you know, reporting in the past on on the harms you get from from gambling, and um, as, you know, as you say, for for a great many people, gambling and 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 you know, getting involved in some of the things we've been talking about earlier in the pod are fine in moderation. They're exciting. The people get it. They're legal, but it's just I think the level of information and the safeguards that we place around these things. And also, I think the normalization of behavior, I think that's the thing that kind of that has troubled me over the last 10, 20 years, and perhaps I've been more aware of it now that I'm a parent, that we are, it's, we've gone from the pools, which was something that my granddad did, to just being bombarded with these just sport equals some sort of financial play. I get to be a, a master of the universe. And I think one thing actually that uh, some football index users have said to me, which is maybe quite hard to get your head around if you never used it, is that you got dividends on footballers and how they performed. So for some of these people would be in the middle of lockdown, nothing going on, maybe they'd lost their job and they'd be have some shares in a player in Bundesliga too. Um, so, you know, they're watching Augsburg or whatever, getting really excited when their player gets an assist. And it created, you know, some excitement, stimulation. I think people have that with gambling as well. It makes a game that you wouldn't ordinarily be invested in more interesting and more exciting. What next then, Joey? That, having having heard these stories and, you know, you've been to Jersey and we've talked about where the investigations are up to, what, what next? So there's a, there's a, a legal um, uh, suit going on by a company called Lee Day who want to uh, get some compensation for users, basically. Um, there won't be government redress like there's been in various scandals before, it doesn't seem like. But if they can source assets and they could potentially um, get them in a civil case for uh, distribution compensation. But there's no expectation that would be anything like the amount of people have lost. People have lost huge sums of money and that's kind of it. I mean, 
there's a gambling review coming up later this year and people will hope that the rules might be changed so another football index can't happen again. I mean, this was a bizarre product. It's not like any other gambling product, you know, virtual shares, dividends. It kind of blurs the line with investment. Hence, people put in those crazy sums. I mean, the man who lost £215,000 said, oh, I was never a gambler. People didn't see it that way. And people really didn't see this like gambling. And the model was so complex and bizarre that, yeah, the review might look to stop that sort of thing happening again. Joey, just one more for me. What's what, what can we say about the key personalities at Football Index? Where where are they now? What are they doing? What are they saying? Yeah, so the chief personalities are two men called Adam Cole and Mike Bowen, and no one knows where they are. It's a simple answer. They've gone to ground. Obviously, lots of people are very upset at how this has gone. Could be anywhere in the world. Thanks, Joey. Right, that's it. Thanks to all of our guests this week. Dan Bardell back on this feed on Friday to look ahead to the weekend. And then on Tuesday, the Athletic Football Pod will be back and the Business of Sport Pod uh, with Matt will be here next week. And don't forget, if you're not a subscriber to The Athletic, head to theathletic.com slash footballpod for a 33% discount off the price of an annual subscription. Thanks for listening. The Athletic. As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager.